I am deaf in one ear. The amount of wax that <laughs> I have dislodged from my left ear canal over the past 24 hours is truly remarkable. It doesn't seem human when it's, you do it. I know. It's terrible. It's like, how how is my ear that deep? Like, yeah. what the fuck? And then I keep making it worse by like going in with another Q-tip. And I know it's going to make it worse. It's, I'm sure it's just like pushing the wax like up against my ear canal. But I'm like, I have to try. <sighs> so that's disgusting. Um, hi, everybody. Hi. We're getting real intimate over here at Saints and Witches. <laughs> uh, when don't we? I truly. That's Liz over there. That's Sarah. Switching it up a little. <laughs> um, she is a pagan witch. She is a Catholic. <laughs> we are friends, and we are here today to talk about saints and witches. Taking another request this time from a Catholic listener. This one is my mom. <laughs> Yay! Mary Beth. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the podcast, and uh, I hope I do this one justice, because it's a big one. So you're welcome. No pressure. Exactly. No pressure. So where are we going to be today? We are jumping into Poland. We're going to be in Poland, and I'm pretty excited. Me too. I knew nothing about Poland, not even where it was located. (laughs) (laughs) I did think it was more south than it actually is. When I looked at a map, I was initially quite shocked. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I always have a general idea of how Europe works. And then I look at a map, I'm like, that is nowhere near where I thought that was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Poland's huge too. It's like taking up so much of Eastern Europe. And yeah, I had no clue where it was apparently. Who knows? (laughs) We live and we learn. This podcast is apparently just going to teach us geography of um, Europe. I, If that were all this podcast did, I would accept that and I would be grateful. I don't even think it's doing that much <laughs> for me personally. <laughs> That's like the bare minimum and I don't really know <laughs> if I'm achieving it. So. so are you kicking us off today? Yes, here we go. Let's get into it. Let's talk about a saint. Okay, episode 11, Poland. Today will be the first time that I talk about a saint who lived during our lifetime. That's pretty rare because as we've seen, canonization can take decades or even centuries. Um, Like I said, this was another request. Request was by my mom. And the saint that I'm going to talk about is Saint Pope John Paul II or John Paul the Great. And let me tell you, There is something about, and I mean no offense by this, there's something about Catholic women over 40 and John Paul II. (laughs) I swear to God, if you know a Catholic woman over 40, there is a picture of JP2 somewhere in her house, and there's a good chance that it's framed. In our house, when I was growing up, we had a fridge magnet of him. 
And it was right in the middle of all the other magnets on my fridge that had like pictures of like my cousins at their graduation or their weddings. It was John Paul right in the middle of all that. So it was like, is that my uncle or something? Like (laughs) confusing for me as a child. Okay, so JP2 was cool for many, many reasons. He was the third longest reigning pope in history for 27 years. He significantly improved the church's relations with many other religions. He traveled to 129 countries during his papacy, and he drew some of the largest crowds in human history. And he was instrumental in the dismantling of communism in Eastern Europe. Here's the thing. I have spent every single history class since Y2K writing erotic Lord of the Rings fan fiction. Every so often something would get juicy in class, so I would sort of like raise my head and start listening again. But for the most part, I did not pay a ton of attention in history. And usually in this podcast, the things that I talk about happened so long ago that I can just shrug and say like, oh, we don't really know what happened. Because it's true, we don't often, but this is the modern era now. (laughs) And Sarah's like, we don't really know what happened during World War II. (laughs) (laughs) There were times that I was tempted to say that and be like, yeah, no one really knows. (laughs) (laughs) Like we don't have footage and extensive fucking books on it. People are still alive (laughs) who lived through these (laughs) My great-grandparents are still <laughs> it's forever lost to us. What a victory. <laughs> oh my god. So so um if I get things wrong, uh please just rethink your expectations of me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Okay. <clears throat> I'm crying a little. Me too. Let's do this. 1918, World War I ends with the signing of the Treaty of Versailles. This was basically an attempt to retake the land and the people that Germany had gained in World War I. In total, Germany had to return about 25,000 square miles of land and about 7 million people. Germany also had to recognize the independence of Belgium, Poland, and Czechoslovakia release control of all of its colonies, reduce its army to no more than 100,000 men, pay reparations totaling around 20 billion marks or $5 billion in gold or commodities, and to accept responsibility for the war, among many other sacrifices. It is disputed by historians what the actual impact of this treaty was. Some say it was good and it was obviously like well-deserved, Um, Some say it was too great a burden to place on a country and that Germany's inability to recover from these losses would obviously lead to anger and resentment and eventually another great war. Of course, hindsight is 2020, as they say. So that's what's going on in Europe. Now we're going to zoom in on Poland post-World War I. So the Treaty of Versailles had given Poland its independence but it had also left some outlying territory kind of up for grabs, allowing the government of those areas to be determined by plebiscites, which I'm, I swear Wikipedia had great faith in my vocabulary by not <laughs> highlighting that word in blue. I was like, what the fuck? 
I'm just supposed to know what that is. Apparently, according to Merriam-Webster's online dictionary, a plebiscite is the direct vote of all the members of an electorate on an important public question. So, learned a new word. This leads to six border wars between 1918 and 1921 between Poland and Germany and Poland and Czechoslovakia. One of the most notable is the Polish-Soviet War, which is basically when Lenin and the proto-Soviet Union wanted to cross Poland in order to spread communism throughout the rest of Europe. It's not really clear who won, and I'm not, I'm not just saying that. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> no. So the Soviet forces do end up retreating, um, but it's still a little like arbitrary. Like Poland suffered a lot of losses. So like who won? Who knows? Um, so we'll get back to that. It's more complicated than that, but I don't have time to get into all of it. And to be honest, I don't even understand all of it, but that seems to be the basic sh- situation. So that's where Poland's at. Kind of a mess, but cool that it's independent for a hot second. On May 18th, 1920, Karol Joseph Wotiva is born in Wadowice in southern Poland, about 50 kilometers southwest of Krakow. His father is Karol Karol Wotiva. He was a non-commissioned officer in the Austro-Hungarian army. He fought in World War I. He earned the Iron Cross of Merit. When Poland gained its independence, he joined the Polish army and was stationed in Wadowice as an officer in the 12th Infantry. His wife, Emilia, was a school teacher of Lithuanian heritage. And they're a Catholic family. Poland obviously has a huge Catholic population Carol Jr. was the youngest of their three children. They also had a son named Edmund and a daughter named Olga. Olga died before Carol was born, and Edmund was 13 years older than him, but the two of them were close. When Carol Jr. is eight years old, his mother Amelia dies. That's in 1929, and in in 1932, his brother Edmund also dies. Edmund was a doctor, and he had contracted scarlet fever from a patient, so that's how he died. So Carol and his father stay in Wadowice for a few years. Carol goes to school. He's really athletic. He plays soccer, or football, as it's known everywhere besides here. <laughs> you gotta do everything the hard way. I, yes, and um, again, on Wikipedia, scrolling, and I, he was like, he played football. And I was like, that doesn't seem right. Then I clicked. I was like, I'm a fucking idiot. <laughs> of course, he's not playing American football, you dumbass <laughs> bitch. <laughs> Tackling people. <laughs> shoulder pads. Uh, shoulder pads. <laughs> He later says in an autobiography that the kids who would play, um, or sorry, that the kids, the school children, would play on teams of Jews versus Catholics, but sometimes he'd go play on the Jewish team because those were his friends. (laughs) He said about a third of his classmates were Jewish. In 1938, Carol and his father moved to Krakow, and Carol enrolls at the Jagiellonian University. He studies languages, literature, and philosophy, and he joins an experimental theater group called Studio 38. He is also a volunteer librarian. 
During this time, he learned 12 languages, including Latin, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, English, French, and German. He also was drafted to the army along with his fellow students into something called the Academic Legion, also known as the 36th Infantry Regiment in Poland. So the Academic Legion was originally created in 1918 when Poland got its independence by a group of university students. The regiment fought in several conflicts during those border wars I mentioned between 1918 and 21, including the Polish-Soviet War. So even though there wasn't an active conflict, Carol and his classmates still had to enlist and attend the compulsory military training. Uh, Carol refused to fire a weapon during the training, which is the cutest. Now, shit's about to get real. In August of 1939, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union signed the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which is a mouthful, also known as the Treaty of Non-Aggression Between Germany and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, which is also a mouthful. (laughs) It's not funny. I don't know why I'm laughing. I think it's nervous laughter because I know what's happening. Um, We all do. In theory, this treaty allows the two nations to basically divide up Poland in half and invade it, and they do so on the 1st of September of 1939. This invasion of Poland is the official beginning of World War II. By October of that same year, they've annexed and occupied Poland. This is not really a surprise to Poland. Um, tensions with Nazi Germany have been mounting for years now. All the European countries had been bracing for this kind of invasion, especially Poland, because it's right sandwiched between Germany and the USSR. It's kind of the gateway to Southern Europe. And Poland at this time is in no way a powerful country. It's still mostly agricultural. It only recently finally got its independence It's been trying to catch up to other European countries since then in terms of industry, but it has nowhere near the defense mechanisms that it would need to protect itself from both Nazi Germany and the USSR. So it was a pretty easy target, and right away things get pretty bad. The Polish army just can't keep up with the Germans, both in terms of numbers and new technology. And Germany is converging from all sides toward Warsaw, Warsaw? I don't know. France and Britain declare war on Germany just two days after the first invasion, but they don't really offer any actual support. Hitler actually gives a speech in Poland during the invasion, saying famously, Poland never will rise again. Ouch. From the start, the German invasion of Poland targeted civilians. The Germans attacked groups of refugees on the roads, they burned villages, they bombed people's homes. Tens of thousands of Polish citizens were murdered, most of them Jewish or Slavic, many, as we know, sent to concentration camps. Ethnic cleansings took place at 760 different mass execution sites, and the total estimated loss of Polish civilians in World War II is in the millions. Poland was about 65% Catholic in 1939, and the Nazis also suppressed Catholicism wherever they went, They closed or destroyed thousands of churches and monasteries, publicly executed clergy members, or sent them to concentration camps to die. So any religious stuff had to be kept very secret during this time. So during the war, when Krakow was occupied, the Nazis closed all the schools, 
and the students were forced to work in order to avoid being deported to Germany. Carroll worked several different jobs from 1940 to 1944. He was a messenger for a restaurant, a stone cutter in a limestone quarry, and he worked for a chemical factory. The jobs were dangerous, especially the quarry job, and he was actually hit by trucks multiple times. One time, Did you say sub- hit? Hit by t- several different trucks, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, by the end of this uh, story, um, I was asking myself, how did this man survive all these things? <laughs> As we'll see, um, lots of near-death experiences for him. Um, so one of the times he was hit by a truck, he suffered a fractured skull, and another time left him with a shoulder injury with a permanent stoop, one shoulder higher than the other. In 1940, Carol met a man named Jan Tiranovsky, I think is how you pronounce it. And Jan was a religious man who followed the teachings of the Carmelites, specifically Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross. He wasn't a monk or anything or a priest. He just followed the teachings. Wait, maybe he's a priest. Fuck. I don't know. He wasn't a monk. Let's just say he wasn't a monk. (laughs) And he would organize these secret prayer meetings for young Catholic people in the area. So Carol started going to those. They were called Living Rosary Groups. Um, the The Living Rosary Association was founded in 1826 in France. It's basically like just a prayer group. So Carol goes to these, he learns all about Carmelite mysticism, and this, I guess, is when he starts to feel a calling to the priesthood. In 1941, Carol's father dies of a heart attack, so all his family is now dead. He later says, I was not at my mother's death, I was not at my brother's death, I was not at my father's death. At 20, I had already lost all the people I loved. After his father dies, he decides to become a priest for sure. And in October 1942, he joins the secret underground seminary run by the Archbishop of Krakow, a man named Adam Stefan Cardinal Sapieha. At this time, he is also an underground playwright and actor. Carol is not not the cardinal. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Why not both? (laughs) Well, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) That wasn't mentioned, but maybe. (laughs) Um, So he was always very well-liked, very charming, and word of him gets around. It becomes known to the Nazi authorities that he's part of this um, democratic Polish underground, and he is blacklisted in 1944. Also, in 1944, he's hit by a truck for the third time. I like to picture those things happening back to back gets blacklisted (laughs) and then hit by a truck (laughs) boom 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 it just keeps piling up for poor carol (laughs) um yeah he gets a severe concussion and when he recovers he takes that as a sign that his vocation is the right one that he's on the right track although personally i might think the opposite Everything is going wrong. I'm Mm -hmm. definitely on the right track. Yeah. Did you see that one meme that was like, it was like someone holding up a sign that was like, I've been in 10 car accidents and survived everyone. I know God has a plan for me. (laughs) So it's like, no, God's trying to get rid of you. Sounds like he's trying to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that was him. God works Uh, in mysterious ways. Very mysterious. 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) Apparently in the form of three trucks. Three trucks, just boom, boom, boom. Where was I? Okay. So meanwhile, while all this is going on, that non-aggression pact that uh, Germany and the Soviet Union had, yeah, that doesn't really hold up for very long. They had initially divided Poland pretty much down the middle, with the Soviets controlling the eastern half and the Germans controlling the western half. But little by little, the Red Army starts pushing west. At first, this seems like a good thing. They go, hey guys, we're here to save you from the Nazis. But in most areas, the Soviet oppression is just as bad as the German oppression. They execute tens of thousands of Poles and deport, some sources say, well over a million. Most of these, again, are civilians. All political parties and organizations are disbanded, except for, of course, the Communist Party. They circulate new currency, meaning that all Polish citizens lose every cent of their money overnight. I don't know why that detail really got to me. I don't know. I can't explain just like however much money you had before, whether it was like you were super rich or whether you had like finally worked all your life to provide like a life for your kids. Oh, sorry. Overnight new currency. What's that? We don't accept your money. So pissed off. I would go burn down a police station. Like it would be my first reaction is just to go burn something down. I'd be so mad. Yep. Burn down the police station. I don't know why I was looking for that. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely in your notes. (laughs) I swear. My brain. Um, I know, yeah. Okay, so all in all, both Germany and the Soviet Union had the literal goal of completely wiping out all of Polish history and culture as quickly and effectively as possible. On August 6th, 1944, later known as Black Sunday, the remaining Gestapo in Krakow go around gathering up and imprisoning all young men and boys fearing an uprising similar to a recent one in Warsaw. Carol hides at his uncle's house and later escapes to the archbishop's palace where he disguises himself as a secretary until the Germans leave, so he escapes. 8,000 men were taken that day. Finally, in January of 1945, the Germans flee the city, pursued by the Red Army. Carol and the other remaining students come out of hiding and return to their ruined seminary and try to put it back together. One day in January of that year, Carol is at a train station when a teenage girl collapses next to him. He helps her get onto the train and she's starving, so he brings her tea and bread and sits with her on the train. Her name is Edith and she's just returned home looking for her parents after escaping a concentration camp only to discover that they're dead. Carol rides the train with her to Krakow, and they part ways. 34 years later, after Carol is elected Pope, Pope John Paul II, he receives a letter from Edith. She had emigrated to Israel, married, and had children, and she wrote to him to thank him for saving her life that day. They kept up a correspondence until he died. Several sources say that Carol saved many more Polish Jews from the Nazi and Soviet authorities during this time. So he was, he was getting shit done. In 1946, he finished his studies and was ordained a priest by Cardinal Sapieha, who sent him to Rome. When he was in Rome, he earned his doctorate with a thesis on the philosophy of St. John of the Cross, 
At this time, he also meets someone named Pio of Pietrelcina. Most Catholics know him as Padre Pio. He later becomes a saint. That's a cool name. Padre Pio, for sure. (laughs) He was a Franciscan friar and a mystic who had the stigmata. And while Padre Pio is hearing Carol's confession, he tells Carol that one day he is going to reach, quote, the highest point in the church. A little foreshadowing there. I like to <laughs> sprinkle it in. <laughs> in 1949, Carol returns to Krakow on assignment to the parish of St. Florian, and he teaches ethics at the Jagiellonian University where he went to school. Also at this time, a group of young people just start following him around. (laughs) He is still very athletic, so he goes on lots of hiking trips, kayaking trips, etc. And the college students just follow him because they think he's cool. Um, So that turns into like a prayer group and a philosophical discussion group. They call themselves the Rodzinka or Little Family. And they refer to Carol affectionately as Wujek, the Polish word for uncle. And still many Polish people affectionately refer to him as uncle now. They also go around the city helping the poor and disabled. In 1954, Carol earned a doctorate of sacred theology at the Jagiellonian University, although at that time the theology department had been officially shut down by communist authorities. So he's unable to actually receive the degree until later. He also wrote for a local newspaper, and he wrote poetry and plays under two different pseudonyms, um, and these were mostly inspired by the war and communism. In 1958, he became the Auxiliary Bishop of Krakow. In October of 1962, he took part in the Second Vatican Council, and the Vatican Councils were ecumenical councils where church leaders and theological experts met and discussed points of issue in Catholic theology. Like back in episode five, we talked a little bit about the Council of Nicaea back in the fourth century, back when the big issue was the idea, is Jesus both human and divine? Basically, because that's the crux of the wording of this one line of a prayer that's driving this huge wedge between these two different church factions. And we need to decide which one of those factions is heretical. So there have been about 21 ecumenical councils since then. The first Vatican Council was held in 1969 and largely concerned with issues surrounding Mary. This second Vatican Council is less focused on heresy as other councils have been and is generally more about the church's relation to the modern world. And it goes on from 1962 to 1965. During that time in 1964, Carol is appointed Archbishop of Krakow. And then in 1967, he is made a cardinal. In 1973, he met the philosopher Anna Teresa Timianetska, I think, an American who became one of his collaborators on his philosophical works and his good friend for the rest of his life. He would even visit her in Vermont and go skiing and kayaking there, which is very nice. Um, There's a picture of him... And um, he's wearing these really short shorts. And I don't know why I'm just like really drawn to that picture. (laughs) There's something about it. It's like it has a magical quality. Watch yourself, Sarah. You're going to be a 40-year-old Catholic lady. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, actually. Well, I will be someday, but. (laughs) 
little too soon. Right. Mm-hmm. Where was I? Little shorts. <laughs> Tiny short shorts. Um, while he's in America, Anna Teresa also introduced him to the American Cardinals, who I guess she had some relation or connection to through her husband, um, who was a politician. And these American Cardinals will actually actually later help elect him to the papacy. So that's kind of important. Okay, seven, nope, 1978. (laughs) I can't even describe how much I hate my life right now. (laughs) 1978, Pope Paul VI dies. Carol and the other cardinals vote in the papal conclave and elect John Paul I. 33 days later, he dies. How many days later? 33. That's special. Yeah. It but is also, special. What the fuck? But also, like, um, hello. So they had another conclave. So people generally thought there were two good options for Pope. There were two Italians, the conservative Arch- Archbishop of Genoa and the liberal Archbishop of Florence. But they both drew such opposition from the other side that they split the vote and Carol Wojtyla was elected. He took the name John Paul II in tribute to the previous Pope, John Paul I, who had been his friend. When he first appeared on the balcony, so in that very first address, after that white smoke went up, signifying that a new Pope had been elected, um, he said to all the crowds gathered in St. Peter's Square in Italian, Dear brothers and sisters, we are saddened at the death of our beloved Pope John Paul I, and so the cardinals have called for a new Bishop of Rome. They called him from a faraway land, far and yet always close because of our communion and faith in Christian traditions. I was afraid to accept that responsibility, yet I do so in a spirit of obedience to the Lord and total faithfulness to Mary, our most holy mother. I am speaking to you in your, no, our Italian language. If I make a mistake, please correct me. So Pope John Paul II became the first non-Italian pope in 455 years, which I didn't know. That's a long ass time. Yeah. He was also only 58 years old, so the youngest pope since 1846. Instead of the traditional papal coronation, he opted for a subtler inauguration ceremony. During the ceremony, when the cardinals were supposed to like kneel before him and kiss his ring... Um, he stopped them from kneeling and simply hugged them, which is the sweetest. Mm -hmm. So in the late 70s, the Soviet Union was struggling a bit. Its downfall was predicted by some people. In 1979, John Paul II visited his native Poland, this time as Pope, and completely uplifted the country's spirits. Poland had really been suffering under the Soviet regime. People were tired of it. This was a Judeo-Christian country, predominantly Catholic, run by an atheistic, arguably fascist government that had attempted to wipe out their religions and their entire ethnic history in World War II. They hadn't forgotten that. So here comes JP II, an ethnic Pole, first non-Italian Pope in centuries, who had lived through World War II and the Soviet regime. The first thing he does when he gets off the plane in Poland is he kisses the ground. The crowds surrounding him are ecstatic everywhere he goes in Poland. 
He represents the single institution that is the complete opposite of the communist way of life that, <clears throat> that Polish people are tired of. He gives a speech where he famously says, be not afraid. He reminds them to be good to each other. And he tells them that God is the source of goodness. The crowds begin chanting, no lie. <laughs> they begin chanting, we want God. We want God. <laughs> As if God were like a president or something. Um, He's just going to come in from like stage left. <laughs> God strolls out. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> it's me you called <laughs> so this visit to poland sparks the creation of the solidarity trade union by its founder lech walesa who later wins the nobel peace prize for the movement's role in protect protecting workers rights through civil resistance some sources even think that the church secretly gave money to solidarity um not really proven, but it's possible. Either way, JP2 supported the movement, and the movement eventually led to the demise of communist rule in Europe. So, during John Paul II's papacy, like I mentioned, he, vis- he visited, I'm not drunk. I swear to God, Liz, stop looking you. at me like that. Just kidding. Um, he visited 129 countries. Many of these visits were the first time a pope had ever officially visited the countries, so here come a lot of firsts. First pope to visit the White House, which he did in 1979 and met Jimmy Carter. First pope to travel to the UK in 1982, where he met Queen Elizabeth and prayed with the Archbishop of Canterbury. So again, Anglican Church and Catholic Church coming together, not really a thing that happened, um, but he did it. He was the first modern pope to visit Egypt, where he met with the Coptic Pope and the Greek Orthodox Patriarch of Alexandria. He was the first pope to pray in an Islamic mosque in Syria in 2001. While there, he preached that Christians and Muslims should atone for the sins committed against each other and forgive each other. And he actually kissed the Quran while he was there, which really upset some Christians, um, (laughs) but made him pretty popular among Muslims. (laughs) He was the first pope to visit Auschwitz and the first pope to pray at the Western Wall in Jerusalem in 2000, both times calling for unity and peace between Christians and Jews. He actually was the first pope to formally condemn anti-Semitism as a sin. Seems like a no-brainer but he was the first one to officially do it. In a 1995 visit to Sri Lanka, he expressed his respect for Buddhism and its emphasis on compassion and joy, saying that he hoped his visit would strengthen the goodwill between Buddhists and Christians. In the African country of Togo, he met with animist religious leaders, drawing parallels between animism and Christianity. He called for an end to war and for society to uphold the dignity of all human life. While he remained conservative on most church issues like sexuality and contraception, he was a staunch opponent of the death penalty, even persuading government officials to commute the sentences of certain death row inmates. He also embraced the theory of evolution, with the exception of the human soul, which he maintained was created instantly by God. He compiled and published the first Catechism of the Catholic Church. He condemned mafia violence in Italy, 
He was the first modern pope to visit Greece, where he prayed with the head of the Church of Greece, breaking the taboo of prayer between the Eastern and Western churches that had existed since the Crusades in the 13th century. During that prayer, he made apologies to the Eastern Church for the Crusades, finally, (laughs) and all other offenses committed against them by the Catholic Church. He also apologized for other offenses throughout the course of his papacy, such as the church's persecution of Galileo, Catholics' involvement with African chiefs who sold their people in the transatlantic slave trade, the church's role in burnings at the stake. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I just realized no one can see that. (laughs) They're saluted. (laughs) I gave Liz a little salute at burning us at the stake. Um, the execution of Protestants following the Reformation, injustices committed against women, etc. Lots and lots of apologies, which were very long overdue. He came to America seven times, always met with huge crowds. He was very charismatic with crowds, shaking hands, kissing babies, just a nice looking guy. Um, His critics said he treated his papal audiences like an American presidential campaign. (laughs) So I knew that some of my relatives had seen him when he came to America. So I reached out to my great aunt, um, my great aunt Nell, and asked her to leave me a voicemail about what that was like. So let's play that real quick. Sure, this is Aunt Nell. I was at the Pope's Mass October 5th, 1979 in Grant Park. It was a very cold, gray, and overcast day. Actually, I sat in the front row because my husband David was being welcomed into the catechumenate program by the Pope. I was his sponsor, and we were called to the altar, and the catechumenants received the blessing from the Pope. Before the Mass, we were waiting in the Art Institute and then marched in procession to our places. When we were on the altar, I was no more than 20 feet from the Pope. I remember his voice. The crowd was huge and very enthusiastic. I remember thinking the Pope was not very tall. He was very good about acknowledging the crowd. He waved and smiled. Thank you, Aunt Nell. So very charismatic, very well-liked by many, many Catholics all over the world, drawing some of the biggest crowds in history. George Bush presented him with the Medal of Freedom in 2004. However, he was not universally beloved. Traditionalist Catholics did not agree with JP2's reforms and with the reforms of the Second Vatican Council, including the use of vernacular language in Mass, where before it had been only in Latin. And they criticized JP2's apparent syncretism in acts like kissing the Quran. But perhaps the best examples of opposition to John Paul II came in the form of assassination attempts. <laughs> Yay! Yeah, many. On May 13th, 1981. Did they use a truck? <laughs> <laughs> no, cuz clearly that didn't work on him. He was <laughs> impervious to being hit by vehicles. (laughs) (laughs) On May 13th, 1981, while entering St. Peter's Square for an address, he was shot and critically wounded by a Turkish gunman named 
Mehmet Ali Adcha, I think, a member of the Grey Wolves, which was a militant fascist group. He was shot multiple times in the abdomen, and the bullets perforated his colon and small intestine. On the way to the hospital, he lost about three quarters of his blood and obviously lost consciousness from that. Before being operated on, he briefly regained consciousness, at which time he ordered the surgeons not to remove his scapular, which again is a kind of necklace that's dedicated to Mary and worn by certain Catholics. It was invented by the Carmelites, and it's meant to protect the wearer from dying without receiving absolution. He made it through the emergency surgery and later said that it was due to the intervention of Mary saying that he, quote, felt that extraordinary motherly protection and care, which turned out to be stronger than the deadly bullet. Meanwhile, the assassin was caught and restrained by a nun, which I love. (laughs) Just the image of that in my head. He's got him in a headlock. (laughs) Yes, Christ, yes. I fucking hope so. Oh, man. He was sentenced to life imprisonment. In 1983, Pope John Paul visited him in prison and forgave him. He said about the meeting, quote, What we talked about will have to remain a secret between him and me. I spoke to him as a brother whom I have pardoned and who has my complete trust. At JP2's request, Adcha was pardoned and released in 2000. He was then extradited to... I know that's not right. I wrote Italy, but I know it's not right. Because he was in Italy before. I think <laughs> Turkey. I think Turkey. I don't know. Uh, he was imprisoned wherever he was extradited to. He was then imprisoned there for previous crimes. He and the Pope kept up a correspondence until the Pope's death. Another assassination attempt was made almost exactly a year later. In 19... Or after the first one. A year after the first one. In 1982, in Portugal, when he was stabbed with a bayonet, he suffered minor injuries, and he actually managed to conceal a non-life-threatening wound until he was, like, carried off into, like, private. Some journalists believed that all of these assassination attempts were KGB-backed. Some evidence given for that is the mysterious desertion and disappearance of certain Vatican priests when they were nominated to a higher position, like a bishop or the College of Cardinals. Um, They just disappeared. They refused the position and left. Some people think that means they were KGB spies. Who knows? So JP2 was very athletic at the beginning of his papacy. He was only 58 years old. He would go hiking in the mountains. He would like run laps around the Vatican gardens, (laughs) kayak places and shit. In Um, short shorts. In those short shorts. He lived his life in those shorts. It was a sight to behold. I'm truly going to post one of those pictures on Facebook because... I dare you. I can't express the joy that it brings me. (laughs) (laughs) It's mysterious to me. As time went on, his health declined, made worse, obviously, by getting shot and stabbed and shot again and fun stuff like that. Getting hit by drugs. You're gonna say kayaking. (laughs) (laughs) Getting shot by a kayak. It's like, what is even happening? No one predicted that. (laughs) It's never been seen since. Oh my god. I don't even know where I am right now. <laughs> Truly don't know. 
Okay. I have to stop laughing because this is serious. It's about to get sad. <laughs> um, he also had several cancer scares. In 2001, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. He had difficulty speaking, difficulty hearing, severe osteoarthritis. During this time, he still continued to travel the world, though. In 2005, he developed a urinary tract infection that led to septic shock, which is horrifying. And um, a new fear that I didn't uh, need (laughs) or want. Um, <laughs> in my life. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Pope John Paul's bladder. <laughs> Can that be the title? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I'm, I'm going straight to hell. <laughs> Here I come. <laughs> okay. Septic shock. (laughs) It's not funny. He remained at his residence in the Vatican instead of being admitted to the hospital, which many people took as a sign that he was nearing death. It would have been in accordance with his wishes to die in the Vatican and not in the hospital. During his final days, the lights were kept burning in his papal apartment, and when the citizens noticed that, uh, tens of thousands of them gathered in St. Peter's Square they held a two-day vigil. The Pope's counselors informed him of the vigil that was taking place outside, and he said, quote, I have searched for you, and now you have come to me, and I thank you. On April 2nd, 2005, just a couple days later, he spoke his last words in Polish, allow me to depart to the house of the father. A couple hours later, he fell into a coma, and he died at the age of 84 from profound hypotension, due to septic shock and a complete circulatory collapse. He had no family at the time of his death, like I said, and no possessions to speak of, as outlined in his will. He had requested burial in bare earth, so he was interred in the catacombs beneath St. Peter's Basilica. The Requiem Mass held on April 8, 2005, set a record for the number of heads of state present. Four kings, five queens, and over 70 presidents and prime ministers, over 14 religious leaders came. Millions of people watched the televised funeral worldwide. I remember watching it, um, like trying to hold it together in the family room and then just going to my bedroom with like tears streaming down my face. Like I couldn't put into words why I was so upset. I was only 10. I didn't know any of the history that I just talked about, but you could feel how like special of a moment it was. And he was the guy on the fridge. He like <laughs> was basically my uncle. <laughs> the guy on the fridge is dead. Yeah. It was serious, <laughs> serious business. Also, it was a really unstable child. <laughs> <laughs> Irrelevant. <laughs> yeah. Just not a surprise to anybody. Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, who would later succeed John Paul II as Pope Benedict XVI, gave the funeral homily in which he said... We can be sure that our beloved Pope is standing today at the window of the Father's house, that he sees us and blesses us. This caused the huge crowds to erupt in massive applause. People started chanting Santo Subito, which basically means make him a saint immediately. And they pretty much did. (laughs) So one of Cardinal Ratzinger's first acts as Pope Benedict XVI 
was to begin the process of JP2's canonization. He waived the rule that the person had to have been dead for at least five years. Some of the miracles associated with... My cat is scratching the couch. The miracles associated with my cat. Damn it! Some of the miracles associated with my cat are as follows. (laughs) (laughs) St. Francis the cat. Um, Some of the miracles associated with JP2. In 2006, a French nun named Sister Marie Simon Pierre, Pierre, Sister Marie Simon Pierre. I'm just going to say that. I'm not going to do the Germany thing again, (laughs) where I embarrass myself. Uh, (laughs) She was confined to her bed with Parkinson's disease, and after her sisters prayed for the intercession of Pope John Paul II, she was cured. As of May 2008, she was working again. When asked whether she thought she had experienced a miracle, she simply said, I was sick and now I'm cured. In my mind, she's like, leave me alone. I have to get back to work. I don't have time for this. In 2007, another miracle occurred at his tomb in which a young boy suffering from kidney cancer regained the ability to walk. In 2009, Pope John Paul was declared venerable after a unanimous vote declaring that he had lived a life of heroic virtue. But there has to be another miracle after this before canonization can be possible. So in 2011, a Costa Rican woman was healed of an otherwise terminal brain aneurysm. It was found that no medical explanation could be given for any of these miraculous cures And in April 2014, Pope John Paul the Great was canonized by Pope Francis, and the the canonization mass was celebrated by him and Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. In 2019, JP2's parents, Carol and Amelia, were also beatified. That often happens with parents or other close relatives of saints. And I thought I would end with a nice quote of his. I don't know when he said this. I didn't have time to look it up. Don't judge me. He said, do not be afraid to take a chance on peace, to teach peace, to live peace. Peace will be the last word of history. So that is the life and legacy legacy of Carol Votiva, St. Pope John Paul II, the great SPJP2TG. Fancy. I always wondered um, if there would ever be a saint like in the modern day, because it's like, oh, you know, back in like, the medieval time period. It's not like they have like fucking cell phones and stuff to videotape. If anything's false, people can write down whatever they want to. But um, it seems like it would be so much harder to be a saint like today with all of the science and uh, just all of the documentation of everything that we have. So yeah, it's really, it's cool that we still have saints. Yeah. Saints like him and mother Teresa um yeah because like how do you prove that someone was miraculously cured and I guess like in this case and in other similar cases it's just like when doctors are like yeah I have no clue what happened dude (laughs) I mean you can imagine in the 1300s the burden of proof was a little bit lower for that kind of thing well doctors (laughs) never had any clue what happened at all (laughs) (laughs) now we've got like fucking ct scans and shit so Mm mm-hmm yeah, it's very different. I like that. I feel like I, I know more now. Yeah, I didn't know any of that shit either. 
it was all new for me too. I mean, I knew like World War II, (laughs) the entirety of World War II. Seriously, listeners, I don't think you understand how much I learned in the last 12 hours out of sheer panic that I had to record this today. And that honestly, that's my commitment to you. A rushed, half-assed research method where I make up half of it. No, just kidding. I didn't complete most of it at like four in the morning, the day of. Yeah. Let me tell you, I am done for a while with these super intense doctors of the church, crazy miracle working people. I'm going to pick someone that no one has heard of for next time. I might even just make it up. A witch, because there there's like two sentences on him, and then everything is also, I don't know. So it's like, okay, mm. cool. <laughs> I'll just find something to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I'll do that next time. Just switch it up. Yep. No, I would fucking destroy everything that is beautiful about your religion. I should <laughs> not be able to talk about saints. I mean, look at me. I just go on tangents. I'm like, look at, look at Pope John Paul in his short shorts. <laughs> Nobody wanted that. I did. (laughs) Okay, that's all that matters. All right. So, today I am going to talk about my latest witch trial to date. It takes place in 1811. Oh, that's recent. It feels bizarre to me because, like, ah, you know, the 1800s, the invention of the novel, the modern era coming about. But then, like, a fucking witch trial? Like, yeah. wh- what is what is that? Um, it, it bothered me. It's kind of like when I found out that Nintendo and Jack the Ripper are contemporary to one oh, another. Oh, wait. I, don't, I really don't like that fact. Uh-huh. 100% contemporary. What? Nintendo. When? When? Jack the Ripper was 1889. Nintendo was founded in 18, uh, 1889. Jack the I'm start that over. <laughs> <laughs> Jack the Ripper was 1888. Nintendo was founded in 1889. Oh no, I don't like yeah. that. That's cursed for sure. It it I don't like it. Um, they're also contemporary to the Eiffel Tower. Uh, yeah, don't bring up the Eiffel one. Tower. That's a sore spot for me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to. I think about that before bed sometimes. Well, now if you want a point of reference, it's Jack the Ripper. So and Nintendo. Okay. And Nintendo. Got it. It's a guidepost in your head for history. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, Dracula the novel comes out after all of those things, which feels wrong. What the fuck? Yeah, it feels very wrong. That was eighteen ninety six. Yeah, it's like uh, can it's in the nineties. Yeah, ninety six, ninety seven. But I I ended up in like uh, a hole of reading those time those history time perception articles um, about how like George Washington died before finding out dinosaurs existed and Oxford University is older than the Aztec Empire. What? Yeah, and the last guillotine execution in France was after the release of Star Wars. What? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. 
all of it fucks with you. I don't, okay, I don't like it. I don't like any of it. Just, I continue to, apparently, um, I think, I think she may have recently passed away. But I mean, like, recently passed away within, like, the last 10 years. A widow of a Civil War veteran. (laughs) What the heck? Okay. And our 10th. Our 10th president, I think his grandsons are still alive. Not great-grandsons. Grandsons. Sorry. I... <laughs> I don't even know what to say. It, it broke me inside. Like, why do um, I feel like crying? I, there's no reason <laughs> to cry. I, I feel like everything I know is a lie. So Yeah. yeah. That's kind of how I feel knowing that there was a witch trial in like the 1800s. Um, mm-hmm. So the one I'm going to talk about today is the trial of a single woman, not a group of people this time. And that woman's name is Barbara Zudonk. Okay. Um, I have no primary sources on Barbara in theory. Um, she's got to be recorded in some trial book, law book, something somewhere, but I don't know. Um, I don't even have academic secondary sources uh, this time on her. Um, anything that might have resembled that was in Polish or German. Yep. Yeah, and I was not going to painstakingly translate an entire book in either language um, mm-hmm. with Google Translate that was just going to butcher it anyway. <laughs> they would turn it into something like, <laughs> and then the witch was attacked by donuts or something. <laughs> You're like, what? Donuts. Donuts. Have you ever seen Attack of the Killer Donuts? What? What is that? Yeah. My grandpa made me watch that. It's a fucking weird ass movie. Um, give it a watch. It's <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Yes, sir. My movie recommendation to all of you. <laughs> it is an hour plus of my life. I will never get back. Great. Yep. Um. I mostly have Barbara's story retold by different people on the internet in a very brief and sensational way. So what I'm going to tell you will feel kind of half legend today. Like a kind of thing you tell your little sister to scare the piss out of her. Or in my case, the kinds of stories my older cousin used to tell me as we walked through the woods in her 150 person village. Um, Yeah, she's... She's 100% the reason I have trust issues. <laughs> <laughs> wow. The good old days. Oh, ah, childhood. Uh, don't you love that childhood when you were so scared all the time of everything? Yeah. I, what possesses, like, someone to just take you by the hand through the woods? Like, you see that shit over there? Yeah. A cannibal lived in it. And you're like, oh, my God, I'm never going to sleep ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> Man, kids are evil. Kids are evil. Creative, but evil. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there was this cool video on YouTube I think was reenacting Barbara's story, but none of it was in English, so I was mostly watching a really cool fire show with speeches I didn't understand and some haunting screams, but 10 out of 10 would recommend. So I'm going to weave all of this together as best it comes together. Okay. Barbara Zadonk was born in 1769. We don't know her mother or father or if she has any siblings. 
Like a lot of witches, the only reason she has any significance in history is because of her trial and nothing about her outside of it was really documented. Mm-hmm. At the time, uh, the body of our story, the main body of our story takes place. She is a 38-year-old maid. Okay. She lives in a village called Reshel, which I did Google is like eight hours north of where your Pope was born. Oh, nice. Um, so opposite ends of Poland. Yeah. Um, but, but I needed a reference point um, mm-hmm. to understand how big Poland was. I'm like, ah, oh, surely everything's next door. It's Europe. Things are tiny. Um, lie. <laughs> um, <laughs> lie. <laughs> <laughs> but it is like the size of a state. I mean, what's that like fucking Georgia driving from like one end to the other? Yeah. Well, Illinois is about seven hours. Well, actually, it's about eight because um, I drive from the very tip of northern Illinois to almost the tip of southern Illinois, and that's seven. So I think from Carbondale to Cairo is about an hour. So it'd be eight hours. Yeah. So the length of Illinois. The length of Illinois. <laughs> Got it. That's how far away they are from each other. Yeah. Um, today, Reschel is a village with a population of about 5,000 people in northeastern Poland, which is the same size as my hometown. So I have a mental reference there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the village is surrounded by forest and by huge patches of field and farmland. Um, it's pretty. The village is known for some of its medieval buildings and landmarks, like Ooh. the Gothic St. Peter and Paul Church, and also the Russell Castle, um, which has some neat old towers on it. Um, I recommend searching for photos of the town. The old buildings are really cool. The orange-red tile roofs. Um, are super, super cool. Hmm. Um, the internet mentions tourists, so I don't know if it's a popular tourist destination, um, but I could definitely understand why it would be. Mm-hmm. A bunch of really cool medieval fucking buildings. Um, that That's my jam. It seems like your jam, too. Yep, totally. 100%. I'm into all that old shit, that gothic shit. I need it. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, at the time Barbara lives here, the village is called, and I'm going to be shot for even attempting to pronounce this because it's, I just can't do it, Sarah. It's like, Lucial, Lucial, I don't know. It's um, Lucial. You better watch out. That kayak is going to come shoot you. <laughs> going to be assassinated with a kayak. Um <laughs> There's a letter in that that's not part of the English alphabet that looks like a B and isn't a B. I know um, I know the one you're talking of. I know the letter of which you speak. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also got the what's is it an umlaut the the two dots. Yeah. Yeah. So that and the B thing. Um <laughs> I don't care if it's five letters long. It's not my friend. It's a hard-code <laughs> German word, and my mouth's not ready for it. <laughs> Oof. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Sorry. I'm going to stick with Reschel, because it's easier to say. The village in Barbara's time is located in East Prussia, not Poland. Um, Shout out to my Prussian ancestors. Prussia at this point is currently a kingdom governed by King Frederick William III or Friedrich Wilhelm III. You've got the Napoleonic Wars and such going on at the time. 
Prussia launched an attack against the French and its forces and suffered two major defeats in 1806, like back to back, kind of embarrassing. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also important to the end of Barbara's story, tension between Prussia and Poland at this time. The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth had just been divided up between the Austrians, Prussians, and Russia by the end of 1795, and Polish soldiers were joining Napoleon because they felt, in really simple, reductive terms, he could help them take themselves back because these people were already enemies of Napoleon. So it seems like Poland's just Getting, getting fucked over for a really long time and taken over by a bunch of people. So um, po- I'm sorry. And like throughout all of history, it seems like, like Poland is the little flag on the tug of war <laughs> rope. Back and forth yeah. and back and forth. Yeah. Uh, we're sorry. Yeah. We're very sorry. And um, I, I made a little note that it's, I just put, uh, in little asterisks, I always feel like I say a war is going on. Um, <laughs> Europe. <laughs> a war is going on. There's no, <laughs> there's no way to know which one. <laughs> Absolutely no way to find out. I mean, it's not like you can look at the date or the geographical location. <laughs> it's a mystery. We can't possibly know who was involved or who won. <laughs> Oh, Europe is just so many shifting territory boundaries and wars and managerial changes because sometimes, like, it's not even that the person in charge of, like, a country or a duchy or whatever the fuck changes. They just get, like, a different title. Like, I forget that there's at one point somebody makes these two people, like, temporary kings. It's like, okay, like, what the fuck's up with that? But okay. Yeah, what's a temporary Um, king? The fuck? Like, how do you take that title away from somebody? Well, I think that's how another war gets started, <laughs> is when <laughs> that, you try. That's probably, that's probably correct. So, um, I like to pretend that things in Europe are fine now, that, like, you guys uh, were put in the corner by your parents or something, and now you all agree. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. Have you figured things out? I don't read your news. <laughs> Reading U.S. news is enough. It's, yeah. it's too much. I think a couple things were figured out and a couple things were uh, got bad again. But there, there's no way for us to know. <laughs> that sounds like the U.S. <laughs> a couple <laughs> things were figured out. A couple things got bad again. Yep. That's uh, history, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah should have taught my high school history class. <laughs> And everyone failed all their exams. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to take this as a moment to digress and talk for a moment about witchcraft in Poland and attitudes about magic to set the scene for the tragedy soon to unfold for Barbara, our 38-year-old little village maid. Okay. So Poland has some cool folklore. I mean, if you can think of a bizarre, disturbing creature, they have probably beat you to the punch. Um, Honestly, I'm really jealous because, like, what do Americans have? We have cryptids, right? Like, that's it. Like like Bigfoot and stuff, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But that isn't that based on something else? I have no idea. (laughs) 
do, is anything unique to America or do we just steal everything? I think we just steal everything, unfortunately. I'm sorry for who we are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry for who I am as a person. <laughs> anyway, um, I would easily trade like the Jersey fucking devil or whatever for some of the crazy <laughs> shit that Poland's got going on. Like what, like a goat man with wings? Um <laughs> Poland has creatures like the bubak, um, which apparently I think is like a scarecrow, but uses a sack to steal children. Oh, that is fun. It's terrifying. Yeah. Um, Poland also has dragons. Nice. Self-explanatory. Jivasona, mm-hmm. um, who swap out babies when you aren't paying attention. Yikes. Um, Rusalka, which are beautiful women who drown men. Um, Love that. I know. Like, put it up as in, like, an Indeed, like, job listing. (laughs) I'm there. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, they're they're just a lot, and they have really cool names that I can vaguely pronounce. Um, But they're so, like, nature-based and creepy and, like, stealing kids and so many of them are, like, blood-drinking monsters that stalk you in the middle of the night. Um, it's really cool. cool. Like, Poland was going through some stuff, and yeah. I respect yeah. it. <laughs> Sounds like it. Um, I also didn't realize how big of a deal vampires were in Slavic folklore like obviously i think dracula you know i think like that part of the the world um but jesus christ they have dug up graves where they found enough people with their heads lopped off and placed between their knees and their laps um or people with spikes through their skulls or sickles around their necks that archaeologists have come to the conclusion these fears of the dead rising again weren't just like a couple isolated cases of hysteria but like a superstition why spread enough that people were being given anti-vampire burials in the same cemeteries but not at the same times by which i mean like not batch burials of people Mm. and that people were being given anti-vampire burials in cemeteries across countries wow um I really want to upload a picture of some of them because just seeing like a skeleton with like a rock shoved down its throat um like it's creepy as fuck but it's cool yeah and that's that's my aesthetic if i had to sum it up so a skeleton with a rock shoved down its throat probably <laughs> i like it yeah that is going to be my new family crest <laughs> actually <laughs> starting that's, now that's pretty fucking metal dude <laughs> um also i made a note that i'd love to get into a big nerdy lecture about the connections of mythology and etymology of how vampires are directly linked to witches but i know that i don't really have time to do that um i could but we'd probably be here all day um so i'm just going to tease you and say that it all comes down to the words strix and it's offshoot striga Mm, Um, i know that word i know that word and maybe someday I will remember to rant about that and explain how it all works. Or maybe I've just inspired you to disappear down a Wikipedia rabbit hole and lose mm-hmm. hours. I am opening a new tab. <laughs> just kidding. 
Who does not love Wikipedia rabbit holes? Um, Mm -hmm. Like I told Sarah, I was researching until like four in the morning. And that's mostly because I started reading about like all of Jack the Ripper's canon victims um, and the Aztec Empire instead of doing what I was supposed to. And that sums me up as a person. (laughs) Poland also has Baba Yaga, this creepy forest hag with that house on chicken legs. Mm. Love it. Love Love it. Mm-hmm. Um, in the vein of haggy, witchy stuff, they've got these things called bald mountains, which apparently show up in The Witcher, you know, like the novels, the, the games. Yeah. Now it's a TV show um, mm-hmm. because the writer is Polish. Um, but bald mountains are places where witches and supernatural creatures like to go hang out. So think Disney's Night on Bald Mountain with... Uh, Chernobog or Chernobog, um, which is a Slavic <laughs> deity. That's what? cool. Not just, just your pronunciation. It was good. Chernobog. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun to say. Yeah. But yeah, it's a Slavic deity. And I, I went and rewatched um, Night on Bald Mountain. And I mean, you can see like the ghosts and the harpies and the demons and all the kinds of stuff that go up there and join him. So it's actually really interesting. That's cool. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty good summary of what the fuck they thought were happening on the top of mountains, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, like, wow, it's so high up there. I wonder what the fuck's going on. <laughs> Don't trust it. <laughs> <laughs> Those mountains cannot be trusted. Uh, the most famous bald mountain in Poland is a mountain called Wisegura. Um, and if there's anything I'm going to take away from all of my research this week into life, it's that L's with slashes through them sound like W's. Um, I will forget absolutely everything else that I have learned except that. I am certain. Anyway, Wisegura used to house a pagan temple. And there are still some ruins up there. Um, I want to say that's from the 9th, 10th centuries. Um, I didn't write it down. Uh, But it's been home to the Benedictine Monastery of the Holy Cross since the 11th century. Named such for having a piece of Jesus's cross supposedly enshrined there. Um, For a hot minute just after a story takes place, the monastery was taken over by the Russians and used as a prison. Then again, many decades later, it was occupied by Nazis who used it as a prison and execution site for, I think, the Soviets. Oh, yikes. Plays into your story a little bit. Yeah, we got Nazis all over the place. Nazis everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. but anyway, I think it's a lot of history and competing, like, aesthetics in one place. Like, there's a lot of shit going on on that mountaintop. Um, it just needs to find itself. Layers of weirdness. Mm-hmm. Anyway, in the realm of real flesh and blood human and out of the supernatural, you have cunning women, cunning folk. Like I mentioned way back with the Pindle Witches. Um, People with either this full-time gig or side gig of dealing in harmless, helpful magic, uncursing milk, healing cows, herb remedies for sicknesses, so on. 
Um, the scholarly research I stumbled across ran the gamut of opinions on whether there was a correlation between cunning folk and witchcraft accusations. So, you know, it's everything from cunning folk were the accused witches to actually the law recognized the differences between them and witches, so they weren't the accused. Actually, cunning folk hunted witches. Actually, cunning folk might be slandered and prosecuted as witches if their spells went awry or the client wasn't happy. Mm. Blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's probably some truth to all of it. I don't really think you can make blanket statements in witch trials, but cunning folk exist. Supernatural creatures exist. Superstitions exist. And that's the magical climate of this area. Okay. So back to Barbara. As I've mentioned, she's a maid in the town, and I've always wondered what maid means. Um, like, does it mean works for a family or an inn or another kind of business? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, one book that I read said house servants could be particularly vulnerable to witchcraft accusations because of their unique position to be sexually propositioned by the husband of the house and to anger the wife of the house. Oh, no. Um, It's not relevant to Barbara, but I thought it was interesting that people were suspicious of maids, um, you know, that they have access to the grounds, the house, the family's food. Um, But it makes sense. Yeah. Um, Barbara's love story, she does have a love story, Um, is not with any husband of any house. In fact, it's a little scandalous. The Mm. object of her affection is a teenage boy. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, remember she's 38. (laughs) What are you doing, sweetheart? What are you doing, Barbie? She's a cougar. Um, (laughs) (laughs) One story says she's in love with this teenage boy, but he doesn't love her back which is depressing. Yeah. Especially when you take into consideration that the second version of the story, they're actually engaged, but the teenage boy isn't being faithful to her. So she's either got the boy and he's cheating or she wants the boy and he says, you. Okay. Um, The sounds are sound. The town certainly doesn't approve in either case. And um, normally I hate conflicting information like this, but um, I kind of dig the campfire legendy vibes of Barbara, especially as we get into her reputation as a witch. Mm-hmm. So Barbara, beyond being a maid and beyond her tragic love for this boy, is known as being fond of magic. And I wish that phrase had been expanded upon. Um, Was she this maid who, in her free time, squirreled away and poured over spell books? Was she fascinated by cunning women she saw in other villages? Does she ever try to become one? Was she one? Was she just an amateur, common practitioner? Um, Or maybe did she just openly daydream about magic and openly express, you know, wanting to learn about it? Because, I mean, she's someone who probably wants to escape her humdrum life where she doesn't matter. And she's made it to almost 40 without being married and settled. And, I mean, she's made it almost 40 without ever ever having become anything more than, like, a maid in her life. Yeah. And the last time I mentioned, like, monasteries and stuff at this time as, like, places of refuge in previous centuries for, like, women who, like, for whatever reason, didn't follow, like, normal societal rules. But then, like, what happened to the women who didn't want to go to a monastery? hmm Yeah. So, yeah, here, here she is just 
in love, fond of magic. Um, I don't know. I kind of wish that the story was a little bit rounder. I just want to see her a little bit more clearly, mm-hmm. um, especially because tragedy strikes her for, like most witches, absolutely no reason. In 1806 or 1807, in the other version of the story, Reschel burns. Mm-hmm. So the entire village, one September night, catches fire. As a result, the village nearly burns to the ground in its entirety. The sky is full of flame and ember and smoke. And the next day, the village is full of ash. And the residents of Rushall obviously want an explanation. This kind of tragedy shouldn't be and can't be senseless. There has to be a cause. Something, someone that can be held responsible so justice and revenge can be delivered. Um, People really don't do well when their anger and grief has no outlet. Unfortunately... In this case, the outlet became magic and teenage boy loving maid Barbara Zadonk. Um, maybe, just maybe, had chanted and burned the town because she was heartbroken her love had been rejected by that boy and she needed to let it out. Or maybe she had set the boy's house on fire for cheating on her, which started the blaze of the entire town. Oh, man. Yeah, she got the shit into that stick. Yeah, truly. Mm. At the very beginning of all of this, I gave the trial date as 1811. The fire was in 1806 or 1807. Um, The number differs from different accounts, but I'll note that whenever I did, like, independent research into some of the buildings. Um, if you look up the St. Peter and Paul church, it lists it was caught on fire in 1806. If you hmm. look up the Reschel castle, it says it was caught on fire in 1806 and 1807. Um, so I think it might be probable that Reschel had two fires, two big fires. And by the second tensions were at a breaking point. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, I point out the time difference between fire and trial, uh, because it seems that after Barbara is arrested for arson, and that's what she's arrested for, she is imprisoned in Rushall Castle, she's tortured, she refuses to confess, and somewhere in there she submits a series of appeals to the courts to vacate her arrest. And every time she loses the appeal, she picks her case up and takes it to an authority one step higher. And we know she loses at every stage because at last she's appealing directly to the king of Prussia. She got all the way up the ladder. But I mean, how exactly do you argue or prove that you didn't bring down a village with witchcraft? I mean, in Germany with the Poppenheimers, the pamphlet Six Most Notorious Witches mentioned the family starting fires that had killed people. Um, And God knows if any of those fires were, you know, actually true, if they'd actually occurred, but they were still legit charges that led to that family's execution. Mm -hmm. Fire in Reschel, on the other hand, is 100% a fact. It has absolutely occurred. Um, And it doesn't bode well for Barbara because she isn't even being tried outright for witchcraft, which isn't really a prosecutable offense um, in this area anymore. She's being prosecuted on the official charge of arson. Mm-hmm. And there's a fire, isn't there? Um, that's pretty much all the proof that they need. It's a bulletproof case for them. So as you can imagine, she does not stand a chance appealing to the king. She is shot down. Yeah. 
One version of the legend says that while she's in prison in the basement of Rushall Castle, she's raped several times and gives birth to two children. Oh, no. But that story tells us nothing about what happens to those children. Hmm. Whether that version of events is correct or not, it's safe to say she didn't have a pleasant stay in castle dungeons for years surrounded by people who hated her. Mm-hmm. I mean, it must have been dark, cold, alienating, maddening, and of course, terrifying because, I mean, anytime somebody comes down for you, you have no idea how that exchange is going to go, how it's going to end. Is it food this time? Is it torture this time? Are you taking me to an appeal this time? Or finally, mm-hmm. is this the day you lead me to my death? Right. And There was a day that they went down and let her out and let her up and out of the castle back into the world, and it was to die. Mm. On August 21st, 1811, they take Barbara to a hill outside of Reschel. But on the hill in front of the pyre, they're kind enough to strangle her so that she doesn't have to burn alive. And it still strikes me as the weirdest form of mercy that you can offer a person. I mean... Who sat down and was like, huh, what's the most humane way that we can kill somebody? uh, By Jove, I've got it. What if we slowly fucking choke them to death? Genius. (laughs) Write it down. Right. That is way better (laughs) than being burned. The best thing I've ever thought of. Wow. (laughs) You said by Jove. (laughs) (laughs) The first words to my head <laughs> say a lot about me. <laughs> Bye, Joe. I've got it. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, that's how I think of this fucking executioner. It's just that's him. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like, why not just take a fucking dagger or something and stab somebody in like the jugular? Well, didn't they have guns at that point too to shoot him in the head? Probably at this point, but I mean, even like the 1300s, like a knife is surely quicker than strangling someone to death. Yeah. Isn't the thing, is it a thing with witches where you can't like spill their blood though? Is that a superstition? idea. I don't know why I thought of that or like if it's true at all, but I don't know. Something about like if a witch's blood is like spilled on the ground, then like nothing will grow there. I don't know. I may be like 100% making that up. (laughs) Well, it would be really, really cool. But then it makes me wonder how they would make concessions for like witch pricking and torture. It's Mm -hmm. like, oh, well, we don't give a shit if nothing grows in the torture chamber. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Like this lighting is terrible anyway. Nothing's going to grow here. (laughs) Oh, well. Oh, so Some people list Barbara as the last witch to be executed in all of Europe, but because the charge was officially arson, not witchcraft, it's debatable and in all technicality, not true. Mm. Um, But it turns out the town actually was set on fire, by which I mean it was arson, not an accident. Um, But the arsonists were Polish soldiers affiliated with the Napoleonic War I mentioned earlier. Oh, man. So I hope they are quite happy with themselves, wherever their spirits may be, mm-hmm. that they got an innocent woman burned in their place. Yeah. 
Fun fact, I did come across a cool, sad gender statistic in two academic books. While the gender makeup of which executions overall is 75% women, 25% men is a very rough average. In Poland, the average is actually 92% women. Holy cannoli. That is really sad. Yeah, so yay sexism and social divides that made it easier to associate women with witchcraft. Not necessarily the people deliberately went after women, and uh, like that's the reason that the percentage is so high, but because there was such a big like social divide in like jobs and the spheres that they were allowed into and like the traits that were associated with men and traits that were associated with women Mm -hmm. whenever you have the profile of a witch suddenly it was a lot easier to lay it on the top of one um instead of both yeah Um, so sorry women (laughs) um Another fun fact, the castle where Barbara was said to be imprisoned is supposedly haunted by Mm. her. It was even investigated by Ghost Hunters International, though they didn't find any hint of her. Just some other presences. I did watch the whole episode, (laughs) and we will pretend it was for research and not because I love ghost shows. Um, (laughs) Like, I love ghost shows okay like obviously i believe in ghosts whatever but ghost shows are i dare you to tell me they're not fucking hilarious yeah and anyone who says that they don't like ghost shows is lying because whatever angle you view them through as i die and shrivel into (laughs) dust Whatever whatever angle you watch a ghost th- show through, whether you're like a cynic and you just want to laugh at people or if you really believe it and you're hoping to see a ghost, like it's the most entertaining thing in the world. It's great. And I am a believer that is an absolute fucking skeptic. So I just make <laughs> fun of all of their evidence that I'm like, that's not how ghosts work, you dumbasses. <laughs> yep, exactly. Oh. Uh, Go watch a ghost show. There's so much fun. I just yeah. turn them on when I want to feel better. It's actually what I exercise too, is ghost shows. Oh, I thought you meant exercise with an O. <laughs> What's the difference? <laughs> My brain is just, no, really, yeah. I feel it feels the same. Yeah, I feel demons leave my body when I exercise, which is not often. Oh, same. But yeah, when I'm on the exercise bike, I really like to turn on ghost shows. They keep me entertained and distracted. Mm -hmm. Um, Another another fun fact, that medieval castle is apparently a hotel now. Mm. Um, I looked at its website. It's in Polish. (laughs) 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 It's got really nice web design. (laughs) Um, I have already added it to our never-ending list of places to visit once we are not dirt poor and also when travel is not shut down from a pandemic. Yep. Um, But a general recommendation to all of our listeners, please go stay in a haunted hotel because it will change your life. Um, I accidentally rented out an entire Victorian B&B on accident um, (laughs) (laughs) because... It it really was on accident. I went in the off season and there were no other guests there and the owners stayed off site. So they're just like, yeah, this 
tell places like yours for the two days that you're here. Yeah, and that was your that was your Stephen King pilgrimage, right? It really, really was because <laughs> I cannot explain how two nights there like irrevocably broke part of my soul and mm. it will never heal. Um, it's the most fucked up experience I've ever had in my entire life. Waking up in the middle of the night to like furniture moving in the other room and like pictures being taken off of the walls. How so long. many loud clanks and bangs. And then I told you there was that weird thing that every time I went to sleep, I dreamt that I was awake again. What the fuck? That's crazy. And then every time I went to sleep in the dream, I woke up. And it was just a never-ending chain of waking up and going to sleep. And by the end of the two days, I couldn't remember what I'd actually done. What the fuck? What, what part of my trip I had done in dream world and what part I had done in real world. That's um, the scariest thing in the universe. Um, it was fantastic. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> try to sleep in sheer terror it's great <laughs> it's character building <laughs> yeah anyway that is the story um i think it was a story it was some story in there um of barbara's dog poor barbara she is it uh, is it such a crime to want to fuck a young boy i mean maybe <laughs> 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 put it like that serve to be imprisoned and burn for it no no that's sad like if she lived nowadays we could just get her like a tinder or something yeah if she lived nowadays she oh my would a have... tinder why did i say that oh no <laughs> that was the wrong platform <laughs> yeah and my brain is like out in left field and I had no idea the significance of what you said until you mentioned it um yeah t- no. <laughs> tinder is a bit that's a, it's too soon she's <laughs> gonna have ptsd mm. oh I'm sorry I'm sorry Barbara I hope that wherever your soul is um you can forgive me and I don't know maybe go beat the shit out of those Polish soldiers yeah. Go find go find their ghosts and put them in a headlock. Like the nun. Yep. In St. Peter's Square. It all connects. I have faith in you, Barbara. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. I bet I would like her. In modern times, she would have like a sitcom. It's called Cougar Town. It's starring Courtney Cox. <laughs> I just realized that that show was a thing that existed. <laughs> oh god so this was fun it was fun yeah you figured out your family crest mine will be a kayak shooting someone in the head (laughs) we saw it all today we heard it all i guess been all over poland took you through some world wars um got got some nazis in there Sprinkling of Nazis. (laughs) Nice dash of Nazis. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right, that's it. We can go on now. That's it. That's the show. Goodbye. Go home. Take a nap.
I think we need naps. Yeah, I definitely do. <laughs> okay, if you uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you know our information, but I'll say it again. Saints and Witches Podcast at gmail.com. Our Instagram is at Saints and Witches Podcast. Our Twitter is at Saints, the letter N, witches. If you want to see a picture of uh, Pope John Paul II in short shorts, head over to that Instagram. <laughs> I will be the first person to like that photo. I can assure you. <laughs> Maybe it'll be my phone wallpaper. Oh my God. It's a good photo. <laughs> So yeah, that's something to look forward to and to go find. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, until, so, then. <laughs> until then. Until uh, then. Thanks for listening and thanks be to God. Blessed be.